This episode is brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VinSmart. Learn more about how we can help you with fleet recall management and maintenance updates, as well as capture vehicle history and VIN data. Give VinSmart a call at 1-888-950-9550 or visit us on the web at vinsmart.com slash for businesses. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the AnvaCast. Uh, this week, we have something a little bit unusual. Uh, we're going to be talking to Dr. Darren Grondell. Darren is the Vice President of Traffic Safety and Government Relations for Responsibility.org. What's different is this is going to be a two-part episode. We've got the first part airing this week, and then we'll be back next week with part number two. So here we go. We're going to listen to part one, and then we'll be back next week with part two. Enjoy. This week, I am excited to welcome a old friend of Amva's who's been in and around our community for a number of years and has recently taken on a new role in the traffic safety world, Dr. Darren Grandel, who is the Vice President and Head of uh, Government Relations and Traffic Safety for Responsibility.org. And Dr. Grandel, Darren, welcome to your very first appearance on the AmvaCast. Well, thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure and truly an honor to be back uh, working with the community and uh, being here on this podcast with you. And we're going to talk a little bit later about welcoming you back to the Amvafold, if, if you will. Uh, but I want to talk to you more about a specific topic that is happening right now in April, particularly April 20th, the week of April 20th, which is a drug-impaired driving campaign. If you feel different, you drive different. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that campaign and why it exists. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about enforcement and drug driving. But let, let's tell everybody what If You Feel Different, You Drive Different is all about. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration um, had done some work in identifying some some messaging that would resonate with the community that, you know, if they're using recreational drugs or cannabis or any of that is is recognizing that when you feel different, you can drive different. And that was a campaign that had come out, uh, I think just a little over two years ago. And it was really helping to try to resonate with folks and, and recognize the fact that drugs do impair. And we hear a lot about drunk driving. We're very attuned to what those signs and symptoms are. We usually see, you know, or can smell alcohol and see some of the impacts when people get impaired or at least drunk. But when it comes to drugs, that might be something completely different. They say, well, I'm not drunk. I just feel a little different. So it's kind of getting that message in their mind that, you know, even dizziness, uh, maybe you're disoriented, maybe you're having problems um, solving problems, uh, your balance, coordination, depth perceptions off. And it's recognizing that, you know what, I shouldn't be behind the wheel of a car or operating a forklift or doing something that's safety related. It's trying to get people to think about the importance of their actions if they have been consuming drugs. Now, a lot of people would say, well, Darren, it's not just about illicit drugs. And I would completely agree. A lot of it has to do with prescription medications and even some over-the-counter medications that people can get impaired by. And then you think about, I know we'll talk hopefully here in a minute more about is how do multiple substances then impact that? 
So drugs and, or alcohol and say cannabis or fentanyl or etilazam mm-hmm. or something else that might be impairing somebody is thinking, you know what, if I feel different, I drive different. Right. And I, and I guess, you know, it's funny that you, you put a bunch of topics on there. We'll try to unpack all of them. Uh, the, you know, that first one we talked about, it's not just about illicit drugs. It's about prescription drugs or over-the-counter drugs. And then you've got this issue of cannabis and marijuana that, depending on where you are, may fall into any one of those categories. Yes. It could be, in some places, it's an illicit drug. In some cases, it's a prescription drug. And in some cases, I don't know if I'd call it over-the-counter, but where recreational use is legal, it, you know, just as easily accessible as, say, an over-the-counter medicine. Yes. And, and you think about uh, legalization efforts with just recreational cannabis. Mm-hmm. And now, if you look, um, if you have a chance to look at the National Council of State Legislators, They've created a nice map to look at states that are now legalizing cannabidiol or CBD. And when we think about CBD, that comes from the sativa plant. It looks, hemp and marijuana look just identical if you were looking at them you know, face to face. The only way to determine if they're different is through a lab test to determine if the tetrahydrocannabinol or the THC level for CBD is at three-tenths of a percent, so like 03 percent THC concentration. But what we're seeing, and you know, and I think this is what's good for the audience to hear, is many of those products are not regulated and they have much higher THC concentrations that can cause impairment. And I think Georgia and Virginia have now allowed for CBD products to have just less than 5%, which when you look at the data uh, or some of the research, that range of three to 6% is what determined the double or quadruples your crash risk. So something to just be aware of is that, you know, it might be seen as CBD, it might be seen as a over-the-counter medication, but it still can impair and it can have that impact. And also as an employee, if you were randomly drug tested under some of those products, you could still come back with a positive THC a result from toxicology, either through a blood test or a urine test or anything like that. So it's just, you know, for a lot of it is just user be, you know, user beware that some of these products still can impair, even though they are not regulated at all. Interesting. And, and as it relates to, you know, NCSL with the map you mentioned tracking legalization, and you mentioned the different rates in an individual and how it changes their crash risk, are we seeing that impact in impaired driving? Are we seeing a direct correlation between states and I shouldn't say just states because we know Canada has national legalization. Are we seeing any correlations between Canada as a nation or the individual states in the U.S. as they're changing their laws for legalization and crashes as a result of impaired driving from, from these drugs and substances? I can't speak on behalf of Canada, but what I have seen with my experience, particularly in Washington State, I was with the Washington State Patrol for 25 plus years and then the State Highway Safety Office Director there for eight, and we went through the legalization process. And the question we kept getting asked is, well, are we having more crashes due to cannabis? And that was a kind of a, a difficult question because what is the impairing level for cannabis? right now there is no number 
there's nothing, there's no empirical research to support any number like with blood alcohol concentration of a 0.08. Right. So when you had fatal crashes where the causing driver deceased had, you know, high levels of cannabis in their system or THC in their system, the active metabolite, was that because they were impaired. And so that was always something we had to caution is they had cannabis in their system and that was the only drug that was identified. So cannabis is a depressant and, you know, at least some of the cannabis is depressant so it can cause drowsiness and, and, you know, be falling asleep and then the depth perception and all those different things that can lead to that. So is it just cannabis that we saw? What we did see is cannabis-only fatal crashes increased. I think it was, it, it actually quadrupled. Now, when I mean that, we went from like 7 to 28 in one year where it was just cannabis-only. But what we saw that was very concerning to us is the number of fatal crashes and serious injury crashes where the driver, the causing driver, was under the influence of alcohol and cannabis. And that is where we started seeing some significant problems. And we had to really kind of adjust our messaging about the synergistic or do, you know, that multi effect that you were getting from cannabis and alcohol, because they, they very, they differ in how they impact the body, the signs, mm -hmm. the symptoms and how the body reacts is very different. So it becomes almost a synergistic effect in the impairment level. But we saw multi-substance going through the roof. In fact, after legalization, we started seeing toxicology reports coming in with five to seven different substances in that toxicology. Some were illicit, some alcohol, some prescription medications, kind of all mixed in that. And it's no wonder those people were involved in type of crashes because it was impairing them mm -hmm. uh, at a very high level. And is this what we've heard the term polyuse has become more of a general term? Is that what you're referring to when folks are mixing different substances at once that's impairing their driving? Yes. So some um, refer to it as polysubstance and you know, or multi-substance. So it's just a really two or more substances that are being consumed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that could be a variety of medications, uh, illicit alcohol, or even over-the-counter. Anything that's mixing together is, is referred to or defined as that polysubstance yeah. use. And you mentioned before the challenge of figuring out, you know, what that level of impairment is. Uh, folks like to compare it to that 0.08, as you refer to alcohol. How does that also impact the ability to enforce impairment on the road? You know, the, the challenges I would imagine of enforcing drug impaired driving, um, some may be similar to alcohol impairment and some might be different. Go back to your roots, right? 20 plus years in the Washington State Patrol. Um, if you were back in the patrol car, how might things be the same or different tackling this drug impairment from the way you were probably trained years ago to tackle drunk driving? So all officers are trained in the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's um, standard field sobriety tests. It's the horizontal gaze dystagmus. They have the one-legged stand and the walk and turn. So you're trained at kind of a basic level of recognizing impairment. Now, those, those tests were really done um, predominantly with alcohol and invalidating those studies. However, there's been some additional studies to show that those tests can be 
reliable to identify other forms of, of impairment outside of alcohol. Now with alcohol, we've got over 70 years of research. It's a pretty easy molecule. We, we understand clearly where the alcohol levels are and what type of impairment you will see at each level. You have the odor typically that emits and you can see the, the signs and symptoms, kind of delayed responses and those kind of things with alcohol. That's very easy. And, and a lot of the officers, you know, that's, that's pretty simple to go through. But then you have those drivers where there's, you know, driving is atrocious or even just some slight things that you've noticed. You pull them over, that observation, um, kind of delayed responses, slowed speech, no odor of intoxicants at all. Then you get them out. They, they fail the field sobriety tests. You do a portable breath test and you come up with triple zeros, no alcohol. And then it's like, okay, well, what am I dealing with? And so we've had the, the national or actually the International Association of Chiefs of Police, their drug evaluation and classification program created the Advanced Roadside Impaired Driving Enforcement Program, 16 hours of training to help officers recognize and identify some of those signs and symptoms that might be involved with drugs. And particularly uh, right now, we're dealing with, you know, with cannabis legalization and what are the impacts of that. So officers can start seeing that because the signs and symptoms between alcohol impairment and marijuana impairment are very different and how they impact the body. Alcohol is a water soluble, so it's float through the blood, whereas cannabis or THC is a lipid soluble, so it stores in your fat. And so when it goes, it goes up into your brain and it stores in the brain with alcohol, we see where the alcohol will actually burn off at a certain rate. Mm -hmm. I think it's 0 0.015 you know, per hour, but we don't know what that is with cannabis. And so that goes into the body. We see where that peak high hits. And then within the first 75 minutes, 90% of that nanogram level that you know, is that number that people are looking for, you know, in states for a per se level is out of the body. So 0 0.08 alcohol is in, in 49 states is the per se level for, B, for blood alcohol concentration. And that's per milliliter of blood. And then you have cannabis in some states, it's two nanograms. Some states it's five nanograms. In Colorado, it's a reasonable inference. You have um, Nevada right now that is two nanograms, but they're actually looking with a bill to eliminate the nanogram level because they're seeing, uh, much like we were in Washington, many people extremely impaired, even below that per se level. So Washington was five nanograms and we were seeing people at two, three and four nanograms that were extremely impaired, but the prosecutors were not prosecuting those cases because it didn't meet that number. Mm -hmm. And there's no empirical evidence to support or show where that level is. But what's interesting is Dr. Marilyn Hustis, who's done some research in this field for many years, she found that that first 75 minutes, 90% of the nanogram is gone, but the impairment continues almost on a parallel track for many hours. And in some cases has increased, even though that nanogram level gets to a point where it's below the level of quantification. So you don't have any nanogram, but the people are still exhibiting the impairment even when it's gone. 
John Hopkins University also did a study in 2019 that they published with uh, a group that just smoked a regular joint and a group that uh, vaped cannabis. And they were looking at some of the differences. And obviously with the vaping, because of the the force of air, it gets into the lungs deeper. It's faster. It has a little bit longer high, but it also, they have found that the impact that it has on the lungs can be very damaging and even long-term or even almost lifetime. But what they found with that too, is with both sets, is that the impairment continued below the level of quantification. And then uh, I think that's where some states are really looking at, is the nanogram level a good, you know, to have a number good for a per se level. Now, Michigan, they actually had a committee that they had organized for the legislature and said, look at the research, look at the studies, bring back a recommendation. That recommendation came back and said, we don't recommend a number. We just, based on the impairment, the officer needs to articulate the impairment. Because we've seen some people that end up with seven or eight nanograms in their system, and they don't seem to be as impaired or may not show any impairment at all. So maybe they're conditioned more to that. So there's some real concerns about throwing a number out there. Um, I think when Washington, the perception was, well, if we put a number to it, then it shows that we have some version of public safety for impaired driving. But isn't that, you know, isn't that the same argument we heard for years with, with alcohol? I mean, different amounts of alcohol impact different people differently, depending on your, your size, your weight, um, you know, you have a different tolerance level, but we had to draw a line somewhere. I mean, is the same philosophy somewhat apply here? Yeah. Th- what's interesting is that, you know, with alcohol, they started at, I think, 0.15. And then years later, it went to a 0.10. And then it went to a 0.08. And then Utah has now moved to 0.05. But what's interesting is that each of those levels, even at a 0.02, a 0.04, which is, you know, for commercial vehicles, they can't be over that, but they can't have alcohol in their system at all. But it's very precise on what type of impairment you're going to see at increments of alcohol usage. But with cannabis, it's very, very, so many variables like usage. Um, The other piece is what kind of uh, tetrahydrocannabinol concentration is in that product. Back in the 70s, it was like 3 to 5%. And then now you're seeing flour in stores that is 29, 30, 40 plus THC concentration. And then you start seeing some of the extracts that they put together, you know, some of what they call shatter or shake. Uh, the oils that they use can be very, very refined to almost 93 to 96% THC concentration. So it adds another layer of complexity is, you know, here's the individual, what kind of products have they been using? What's the THC concentration and what's the impairment that we're actually seeing from that? And typically, if you're just using cannabis, a regular form of cannabis, the officers will not see like in the horizontal gaze dystagmus when you get out to like a 45 or a 90 degree angle, their eyes start bouncing with alcohol. But with cannabis, you typically do not have any horizontal gaze nystagmus. But what some of the drug recognition experts are seeing is that when they have had subjects that have used those high, high concentrations of THC, it's now impacting those optic nerves. And so 
they're starting to see some of that in high levels of THC concentration. But those are, you know, when you think about, and I think what a lot of people try to do for, for simplicity is they try to equate the alcohol to cannabis across the board. Well, if we give it a number, then we're good. You can measure it and move forward, make it black and white. It's easy for juries. It's easy for judges. Hey, we got a number. Hey, that number is, you know, that per se limit. Right. Even though nobody is asking, well, what does that number really mean? And does it have any value at all? <laughs> so, you know, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, we try to share is if you're looking at legalization, make sure you know what the research and the science is actually saying. Because right now, all of the experts are saying there is no number. Interesting. Yeah. And so when you when you mention how it impacts the body differently in the different levels, um, and you mention how eyes react, how is this appearing behind the wheel? Are we seeing a difference? You mentioned early on uh, in one of your statements before about the way someone who is impaired with drugs, specifically cannabis, marijuana, um, it impacts them differently than alcohol. Does that also affect the way impaired driving appears. You know, you think about a, a drunk driver, you think about someone who can't stay in the lane, um, someone who can't control their speed. Um, how does it, are we seeing any of those similarities with someone who's impaired in cannabis or is the way impaired driving appears also different? It's interesting, you know, from the, the subjects themselves, you know, we know that marijuana, um, overactivates parts of the brain that contain some of the highest number of receptors, which leads to that, that high, that psychoactive piece from THC. We have actual cannabinoid receptors within our own body that it attaches to. So that's why it, it impacts us. But some of the effects that self is like an altered sense. Uh, for example, they, they see brighter colors. Some of it is an altered sense of time. So they, they think, I think time slows down for them. And then it's like changes in mood. So you might see that erraticness of somebody that speeds up and then they slow down and then they speed up and then they slow down. Typically we think that's a distracted driver um, because they're texting and then they get done texting and they speed up again, you know, but, but we do see that change in the mood. They have some of that lethargy that goes in. If you have like gaze nystagmus that's identified, that actually impacts your ability to react to things and stimuluses in your environment. Hmm. So you might react differently, much slower, but in your own world as the driver, you think you're reacting quickly, but in reality, it's a little bit slower. They have difficulty with problem solving and thinking. And so it's like they get into an issue and they make, oh, how do I solve this? Or how do I address this? So those are other things that, they, that we've seen. Some of the parts of the brain, like the hippocampus, the basal ganglia, some of those areas get impacted as far as balance, coordination, short-term memory. And even when we start seeing some people using high doses of cannabis or the, those concentrations, they start having delusions, hallucinations, body tremors. Uh, and when I was in Washington, we started seeing at our local hospital a number of cases where they were coming in that they were using what they call dabs. And it's kind of taken from like, they call it like honey oil or butane. Anyways, they were taking these little dabs and smoking those and the concentrations were so high 
that many of them ended up with the hallucinations, the body tremors, uh, cyclical vomiting, and many of them were finally being brought in because they were reaching a point of dehydration. And then we saw where the the store owner says, well, hey, this is a good product. We just need to train people how to use it, you know, because this is not a little dab. Well, you know, a little more dab will do you. I mean, it's <laughs> just a little, little dab will do you and for the dabbing. And so, um, but I think that's something that people don't really understand is that because cannabis becomes legal, doesn't make it safer for drivers to drive. Sure. And when I was in Washington, you know, I heard a, I had a leadership team from a high school that had come into a meeting and I said, can I just have five minutes of your time? And they said, sure. And so I started asking some questions. And one of them was, what is the perception now amongst high school students with the legalization? And mm-hmm. without hesitation, the team captain said, you legalized it, you made it safer. And he says, now, I'll tell you, director, that that's not true. And I know that. But that's the perception amongst many of my students is, hey, it's now legal. They've made it safer. It's okay to use now. But really, in reality, we've actually made it even more dangerous because the concentration levels are so much higher. So much more potent. Yeah. And in that sense, it's, it is similar to alcohol in that it's, it's legal. The danger of using is still there, let alone the, the impact on your driving skills. Yeah. And that's one of the perceptions that we had to overcome in Washington is they said, it's not a big deal. It makes me a better driver. I slow down. I'm not as aggressive. Uh, I'm a much better, you know, I'm a much kinder driver. <laughs> but I had to start asking. I'm like, well, when you mean you slow down, does that mean that you're slowing down from a higher speed to the speed limit? Right. Or does that mean from the speed limit, you're, you're way slower so that you now become a, a danger to others because they're going the speed limit and now you're... You're, 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 you're going half of it. Yeah. And... What was interesting is the, uh, um, I think it was Dr. Marilyn Hustis, Chuck Hayes from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, their uh, drug evaluation classification program pulled all of the uh, cannabis only uh, drug recognition evaluations. They had both the evaluation and confirmed toxicology that it was just cannabis only. And the number one probable cause for the stop was speed over legal. And they looked at both because some of the states were doing the five nanogram thing. So they looked above five nanograms and below five nanograms. And the, the below five nanograms with his, with his in just a couple of percentage points different. But still, the number one reason for the stop was speed over legal. And then, obviously, you'd have some of the, you know, weaving in the lane, lane travel, some of those things. But, you know, what was very interesting is that is this altered sense of time... And this is, this is nothing scientific, what I'm about to say, but it just helps me maybe help understand it, is if they have an altered sense of time, do they feel like they're going slower so they actually speed up? And so is there something in there that is forcing them to go fast? And that's why many of them are getting stopped because of that altered sense of time. Mm. Now, one thing I will share with the group too is what we see, because some states are hey, if you have a 0.08 BAC level, just take them for alcohol. The problem we're seeing is around the states, and I've heard from a couple of drug recognition experts, is that individuals will drink alcohol after they've consumed cannabis because they might get really, really high, almost like agitated. And if they drink alcohol, it helps to kind of bring that high back down again. 
But they also, what we've heard from some of the drivers is, well, if I smoke cannabis and then I just drink a little bit of alcohol, if I get stopped, the officers can't tell if I've been drinking or been smoking. So, uh, you know, and if my bad, driving's bad and if my alcohol level's kind of low, then they might let me go. So there's, a, I think, a, even within the own group is they don't think we can detect the, you know, drug impairment, where in fact we can. Right. And see that, that it's both in play. Interesting. Yeah. And so you get the officers that are trained in the standard field sobrieties, the A-RIDE, and then you have the drug recognition experts. And really the A-RIDE program was designed to help identify drivers to then call in a drug recognition expert to go through a 12-step process, very scientific, and then helping to identify what that drug category would be that that driver might be influenced by or multiple drugs. So there you have it. That was part one with Darren. You could tell that there is more to come. So please tune back in next week, download part two of If You Feel Different, You Drive Different. We'll see you there. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Ambacast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode is brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VinSmart. Visit us at ambacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.